Our memory verse today comes from Daniel 3, and Daniel 3 is a very famous Bible story. It's uh, the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. I mean, it's been told lots and lots of times, even vegetables have a cartoon that have done a a show on it and everything. It's just, it's everywhere, right? It's a powerful, powerful story. It's true, right? Well, in that story, uh, there is a phrase, there's there's a verse here. And uh, it starts up, I think, one of the most powerful expressions of faith and trust, I think, in all of the Word. And I have actually used this passage this week for encouragement. So if you take it out, we'll read it, and then um, this is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said as staring in the face of the fiery furnace. And so here's what they say. Here, say it along with me. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. That's Daniel 3.17. Think about that. These guys were not standing in front of some like some figurative furnace, right? <laughs> they weren't like, oh yeah, if life gets hot. No, it, 2,500 degrees probably was cool, hot. I mean, that's how, that's, uh, that's a lot. You say, if, if even in that, God is able to save. When, when, when the rubber hits the road, when life gets difficult, a certainty that God has the power to save. We're going to talk about that today, how we know that God can save. Think about the power, because you may not be being thrown into a literal furnace, but this world is difficult, isn't it? It's a crucible. And we need to be remember, reminded of the power of our God and the love of our God and the ability of our God to overcome this world. And so we're going to talk about that today. And so uh, in this story of Daniel... Uh, in fact, if you have your Bibles, if you just take them and just open them up to uh, Daniel chapter 3, that's going to be uh, Daniel 3, it's like two-thirds of the way through the Bible. It's still in the Old Testament. It's on page uh, 615 in our Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got lots of them in the back. Uh, the church should have Bibles, and you are the church. So if you need a Bible, grab one, take it, our gift to you. Um, and as you're turning there, just some things. This story, uh, when we talk about how to have a, a respectable faith. Um, we live in an age where there's a lot of fear, right? In fact, uh, I've heard and I've read a lot of things where it says we live in the age of terror. And it's not just extremists and doing terrorist acts. Um, there is certainly that. Uh, and But we also live in an age of terror of all kinds of things. Uh, people are terrified of, of having a re- next recession, right? Of having the next layoff, uh, terror of, of, of fire burning down our homes or a flood. It's an age in which a lot of people have a lot of anxiety. In fact, we know that for a lot of mental health uh, workers that say that this is an age of unprecedented anxiety that we live in. And, and terror has been around, fear has been around for a long time, and it's a huge motivator in, in human life, which is one of the reasons why it's not surprising we see fear so often used as a weapon, don't we? Right? How often? I mean, f- think about it. So many like governments oftentimes like do this or else, and so we're gonna we're gonna you have to do these things. Or you're gonna face these fines or this prison time or these things like this. We're gonna use fear, or but we also see that things like even in employment. How many times have you been coerced to do something that was maybe questionable or outside of your job description or whatever because of fear? Do this or else. You're not going to get the promotion to do this. Or you're going to you're going to get demoted. Or you're going to be fired, or you're going to be let go, or you're going to be right. Fear. It's a powerful thing, but we also see it in in families. 
I had so many uh, – I've done the counseling throughout the years for families and, and marriages oftentimes. It's can, fear can be used. And, like, if you don't do what I want you to do, you're going to get the cold shoulder or else – you're gonna, uh, you're gonna sleep in that other room. That's what's gonna happen to you. You're gonna, it, it, I'm gonna manipulate. I'm gonna force you to do what I want you to do. <laughs> and if you don't do what I want you to do, there's gonna be punishment, right? Fear, and it's powerful. We use it oftentimes with our kids. How many times have we used fear and said, you know, do this, straighten up, or else, right? And not all fear is bad, right? But it is a powerful motivator. I think we need to look in our lives and to see that a lot of things that we do in life has this motivation of fear behind it, doesn't it? And some of that's good, some of it's a healthy respect, and some of it's bad. And I think what we find in our world, we live in an age of terror, is that more and more fear is is entering into our life and changing what we do and why we do it. And unfortunately, because of that, sometimes the things that we're doing, we're making decisions based upon just fear of the consequence instead of a different kind of fear. There's as much as fear is a weapon, there can also be a foundation. We see in, in Proverbs 1.7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It goes on to say, But fools despise wisdom and discipline. When the great book of wisdom says that fear can also be a great motivator for us to rise above, can trust the right things, can be the beginning of where wisdom even starts. So what's the difference? How are we supposed to know in our life if we're fearing the right things? Because I think, I think that in our life and our experience, right, as we live today in this hostile environment, and and it's not just hostile to faith, this world is is hostile. Sometimes I think that we are motivated to make decisions that are faithless because of fear. And because of that, our faith is not respected. Right? We we become intimidated. We don't speak up. We 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 go back on what we know God wants us to do. We don't take the steps that He wants us to do because we're afraid of what the consequences might be, right? What's the difference? Well, it depends on what we're fearing. And one of the things with power is that it has the ability to make us fear. In fact, that's not bad. Authority. Parents should have that. Government, we respect because they carry the sword, it says in Scripture. We fear the Lord. But why are we fearing, and who are we fearing, and what are we fearing, and how is it causing us to react? And today we're going to talk about, there's a story that teaches us how to have respectable faith is how we deal with this fear that we respect true power. And that true power, fortunately, we found is not where most people in this world think it is. So hopefully that gave you enough time to turn to Daniel 3 because I can't continue talking along. If you're not there, if you're not there, I'm sorry. You're just going to have to listen to it online. All right. So Daniel 3, it says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of of gold, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, in and of itself, you're like, well, that's weird. You know, he's a king, right? He's going to do whatever he wants. And let me put these in modern terms. That was 90 feet tall, 10 feet wide, which is a weird uh, shape for something. If it was a human uh, being or whatever... um, Either you had to be on like a really tall pedestal, right? Because if not, it, it would look like when you Photoshop an image and you just stretch it really long, right? And it's like really tall and thin. So if it was a person, it would be awkward. I don't know. Maybe it was on a platform. Maybe it wasn't. That's not really what it even talks about. It says that he sets up an image of gold. Now, when in Scripture was this? This is why context is so powerful when we study word. What happened in the previous chapter? What was the king dreaming about? A statue. Yeah, and what is that statue? That statue was made of things, wasn't it? And it had a head of gold. 
It had shoulders of silver and all that kind of stuff, different kind of metals on it. But this statue was all of what? Gold. I think it's kind of interesting that the right after he has this dream about saying that statue with the head of gold and all these things, God, through Daniel, told the king, and he believed it, said, listen, there are going to be different kingdoms that come after yours. Yours is the head of gold, but gold doesn't last forever. It's not the whole thing. And what does he do right away? The very next thing we see him doing is going and building the statue of solid gold. And saying, there's not going to be silver after this. That's what he does. He believes God, but he's trying to say, I have a better plan than what God has. There's not going to be silver shoulders after this. It is gold. Babylon is gold. That's what it says in the kingdom right before that, right? That's what God said. If you see this image, the gold is you, Babylon, and after you will come others. I think it's interesting that all of a sudden the king realizes the statue was nationalistic, had to do with with nations and time and and empires. And the very next thing we see him doing is building just a statue of solid gold saying, this is it, this is Babylon, and it's not going to end. And so what does he do with this statue? Well, it's kind of big. You're going to show this thing off. And so uh, it says that he he makes this statue, and then he sets it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay, so that's going to be outside. For those of you who can see this thing, there's, there's a picture of ancient Babylon. That's where it was. Dora was right there, so um, it's, it was a little ways away. Remember that at the end of the chapter, of chapter 1, uh, Daniel got, um, he got to uh, stay in Babylon because he was promoted really high there, but his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they got sent out to another province in the region of Babylon, right? And uh, Babylonia, which would be that area, um, and uh, to be high, high officials. So that's kind of the area that we're looking at. However, something interesting, we push it again. There's a, another archaeological fight that was found, a site that was found right south of where Babylon, about six miles south, um, that they found a huge pedestal. That's so 25 feet tall. It <laughs> goes that you would put a huge statue on. Um, and, and, and Dura means walled city, so it was inside of a walled city. So it could be either one of those places. I just think it's cool when archaeology, when we talk about Scripture and we see these places, you get an idea of kind of where that is. And if you see where Babylon is there, um, if you go just north of that, kind of where the river's pinched together, that's where Baghdad is. So kind of give you an idea where things are today. Fascinating stuff. All right, so anyway. There they are, they're out there, and people are like, hey, where's Daniel in this story? Daniel is in Babylon. He got to stay there, his friends got to go to a different region, and this was a regional thing. It wasn't everybody in the whole country, this was a regional thing. That's where Daniel is. Okay, so we go on for it. So he sets this up, and he summoned, who did he summon? The satraps, the perfects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all other provincial officials, provincial officials, important, to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. This was a big, this is a big thing. And you're going to notice in this passage that it repeats itself several times, right? There are certain groups and things that are repeated. Why? You ever wondered that? Well, it's because in the Bible, when they wrote things, and it was, they didn't, you can't italicize when you're speaking something, right? And you can't, you know, uh, in, in the scripture, you can't like bold something and underline it. When something is really important, especially reading Hebrew text, they're going to repeat it. And when you see something repeated, it's like them saying, hey, wake up, dummy, this is important. Right? So here's a group of guys that are repeated several times in this, in this text. Why? Well, they're telling us, this is a big deal. It wasn't the looter, losers. This wasn't the, the, you know, the, just the general populace that was invited to this. This was a governmental thing. 
It was a governmental inauguration of a new religion is really what it was. It had to do with worship. <laughs> and that's what he was doing. This was a big deal, and it, was, and it brought together the most powerful people, which comes later on. We'll see why that was important. God was setting something up that, that Nebuchadnezzar had no idea <laughs> what it was, right? But God was bringing together the very biggest, the most influential people in the land. And they think they're going to start a new, a new religion to worship the state, Babylon. And they show up there, and so they're there, and so then they're like, all right, we're here for this dedication. And then um, in verse 4, they get instructions. Okay, now you're here. This is what you want to do. And it says, And the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. Now, for starters, we talk about power, right? Here is a king of an empire, and he begins to say, all right, people, all nations, all different kinds of people, right? You, I own you. I'm, he's claiming this, this domination, this, this outreach, this power, this, this expanse, that you fall under what I command you to do. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is claiming. This is a lot of power. And he did have a lot of power. Now, there's one other place in Scripture that we find that people of every nation, tribe, and language worship. And that's at the end of the book. Because no place in history have we ever found that there has ever been a time or a place where all people, all tribes, all nations, all people are unified under anything other than we find is in, in Christ. He's the only one that can bring us together. But this, Babylon is trying. Nebuchadnezzar is trying. So he's bringing together all the people together. And he's saying, this is what you're going to do, all peoples of every language. He says, uh, and, uh, verse 5, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music. That's another one of those things that's repeated several times. It says, you must fall down and worship the image of gold uh, um, that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So they're all together, and he says, I have authority over the earth, basically, and, and this is the head of gold speaking. Right? This is what I want you to do. You're going to worship this thing. This statue of gold. Now, there's a lot to this, and these are the high officials, right? These are people of great dignity and of great learning and all these kinds of things. People from their own cultures, right, who had different gods, right? And if you remember, Babylon was even called, you know, it was the city of gods. They would go and conquer other countries and, and peoples, and they would try to bring their gods into that city to conquer them. Their gods were sub, uh, subordinate to the gods of Babylon. You have this this nation who says, all right, now you're going to worship this. You're going to worship the nation itself, right? You're going to worship this thing. There were people in the audience who were there who would not be very happy that they have to worship, fall down and worship a statue of this foreign god of their conquering land, right? I, I think about like my heritage is Irish, right? And so uh, for many years, the English came and, and took over that area, right? And, and said, you have to worship this way and all that kind of stuff. And it bred some really bad blood for a long time, right? That was happening also in Babylon. And this is how the king handled it. He says, you're going to worship these gods, and, and this is how I'm going to make sure that you do that. Um, he says, "As you, uh, verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship the image immediately will be thrown into a blazing furnace, which is good motivation, if you think about it, right? Like if I was like, Knocked on your door on a Sunday morning. I'm like, it's church time. If you don't show up immediately, we'll throw you into a blazing furnace. You know, attendance would be up. Right? 
That would happen. And that's how the world works, doesn't it? Do this or else. And so you have these people who didn't want to do this, but they are being, they're being subjugated to this. And their fear dictated their actions, and their actions would then bend a knee to this nation that was not kind to them. And that's what they would do. In verse 7, unsurprisingly, when they heard the instruments again listed out, why did they list the instruments out? I think it's fascinating. Of all the details, they're like, made sure we knew the instruments that were playing. This is a national orchestra. This was not a small thing. Right? These were, nation, these, were, these were instruments from all over. This was the nation's orchestra saying, we are here. Um, this, is, this is nationalistic pride. Right? This, we have power. This let us know this was no small event. This was a big deal. Because it makes a difference, right? It's harder to stand up for our faith sometimes when it's a big deal. When there's a lot on the line and there's important people around and we're going to look stupid in front of those that we think matter. That's what he's setting up. And the instruments play and, of course, everybody falls down. Well, not everybody. Verse 8. So at that time, some astrologers, if you have one of our Bibles, it's also Chaldeans and other scriptures. We're not sure. They were some, one, some of the high-ranking people, the, the wise men from Wise Men University who got embarrassed last chapter. So if you missed that, you want to read that. And you might see why they might not be so f- favorable to these Jewish guys. Because these guys uh, basically showed that they were fla- frauds. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got promoted while they didn't. So they got a chip on their shoulder. And so they came forward and they denounced the Jews... And they said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, and all those instruments uh, must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever doesn't fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. I love how these guys, you look in there and, and we talk about trusting power. The king has a lot of power. But these guys are not just trusting in the king's power, they're trusting in their own power. Their own power to manipulate a monarch. And we see it later on in other chapters too. These same kind of individuals come in and they know they can manipulate these guys who have power and so they're going to wield that power to however they want. And they trust in themselves, right? They're like, we want to get rid of these Jewish guys and we see our opportunity. So for them, it had very little to do with nationalistic pride, you can tell, because they were out to just get these guys. They wanted to manipulate the king for their own ends. And so how did they do it? Well, the first thing, they, they, they respect him, they butter him up, they had to go through the process, made the king leave forever. Right? We, everybody knows the king's not going to live forever. As we, so doesn't hurt to say it. Right? May the king live forever. Oh, great king who brought us here to worship this statue. Right? Then what do they do? They remind the king of the stupid decision that he made. Didn't you say everybody's got to worship this? Yeah, okay. And then they remind him of, of the consequence the king had already issued. Right? They trap him. They box him in. Anybody who doesn't do this got to be thrown into a furnace. And the king's like, yep, I did do that. And then they spring the trap. You know those really great wise men who helped to interpret your dreams, you know, and you said in the previous chapter before that their God is sovereign over all times and spaces? You know those guys? Yeah, you're going to have to burn them up. That'd be embarrassing if you're the king, if you think about it. Because it wasn't like nobody saw this. I mean, it was all the satraps and all the, you know, that's a cool title of a name, judges and all the other people are standing around looking at you like, what are you going to do, king? Like, maybe I made a mistake. So the king brings them together, right? Brings them in. And I love how this, he does. So they're trusting their power. They think we've got it. We're going to burn these guys up. Problem solved, right? Well, 
So the king, it says he was furious with rage. He was embarrassed. And you know, literally, I think it's ironic. They actually, the Hebrew says he was burnt up, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> right? When you read that, you're like, oh, it just drips with irony. He's like, oh, yeah, the king was burnt up. He was fuming. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so those men were brought to the king. And the Nebuchadnezzar said to them, in verse 14, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You know when your mom says your whole name, things are bad? <laughs> That's one of those moments, right? They're standing for a king who could have them killed painfully, and he's like, I'm warning you exactly who you are, right? And he reminds them of their Babylonian names, that their God, they had, God allowed them to be taken captive into this land. That their identity was defined by him. I mean, he's speaking right to the very core of, of their who they are. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, you're not even who your parents named you. You can't even carry the name of your God. Is it true you would actually, look at what he says, that you're not going to worship the image of the gold that I've set up? He's like, clearly you don't know what you did. He's trying to save his face for himself, Right? Like, maybe these guys didn't hear that uh, the guy who went through the crowd well. Maybe they didn't understand. Right? I'm giving you another chance, guys. And that's what he does. He says, so now when you hear all that music, right, uh, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, that's great. But let me just tell you, just so you know, if you don't, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And here's the part where I think he crossed the line. He says, and what God will be able to rescue them from my hand? You see, up to that point, I think he was just acting like most tyrants. You know, I trust in my own power. You do what I say. Things go good. Things don't do what I say. Things are going to go very, very, very badly for you very quickly. But then he forgot that they worshipped the God that he, previous chapter, said, this is the God of all places. This is the God of all time. This God is sovereign. No one could stand against that God. Knowing who they worshipped, he said very clearly, your God can't save you from my hand. He's very much saying, I'm more powerful than your God, isn't he? Their response is amazing. See, Nebuchadnezzar, he trusted his own power. The power that he welled, the power that he had to, to be able to manipulate other people. And most of us, none of us, have ever experienced that kind of power. Like he could turn you know, mountains into roads. He could have a a 90-foot statue made of gold whenever he wanted to. He could call together all the powerful people. He had an enormous amount of power, and it went to his head. But you know what? We all have power in our life, and it gets to us, doesn't it? It's called pride. And we think that I'm going to make things happen my way. I will either manipulate people like the, the, the previous wise men tried to do, or you're going to try to force people to do what you want to do, right? And, and you're going to use your ability to just force your will upon people, regardless of what God or anybody else wants. That's a dangerous place to be. Nebuchadnezzar fell into that second trap. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Agendigo, they were in a difficult spot because it's not like they could disappear now. Right? They couldn't just float into the crowd and just be quietly faithful. And I think a lot of times in our culture, we have the ability still to be quietly faithful. And it's nice, isn't it? Like everybody else is expected to go and do these things, and we can just say, no, nah, not so much. And everybody kind of ignores us, and that's good. 
we think. <laughs> but God was doing something and they couldn't be ignored. And so he brings them out and the king says, they're going to play these instruments and as they play, we're all watching you. Not just me, but everybody. And everybody knows exactly what this is. Now you had better, you'd better give in. That's scary. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where your faith has been tested to the point where everybody's looking. And if God doesn't show up, not only will you be mocked, but God will be mocked, right? That everything is like, there is no place to hide. You can't excuse, you can't argue your way out of this. You are just stuck. That is where they were. That is fear. And what did these men do in the midst of that fear? Because it was real. They could see this furnace right there. And by the way, let's talk about the furnace. Because I, I had some time as I was studying this. Furnaces, you know, um, Babylon was close to ancient Babel. It's kind of cool, that land where they built something a long time ago. It was a tower. And the reason that tower that they were building was so, like, uh, technologically advanced, like they were going to build this huge tower, is because they were going to use this brand new material that they were able to make. It's called bricks, right? Brick technology is awesome. And it was not just any kinds of bricks, but it was baked bricks. Because when you take the mud and you don't just set it out in the sun, get, when you bake it, it gets super duper hard. And it gets, you know, and you're able to make big things out of it. Well, now, a couple, like thousands of years later, that technology had grown, hadn't it? And so this place, the birth of bricks, right? This was their technology. Kind of proud about it, by the way. They had all these different kinds of furnaces they made. Most of them were like these beehive ones that they would set in and they would make these massive walls and stuff out of it, Right? Not only could they bake bricks, but they were able to do something amazing. They were able to do ceramics, which are a lot hotter. You need better kinds of these furnaces in order to bake ceramics. Now, I don't know much about baking ceramics, but uh, a couple months ago when, when we were on our sabbatical, I met a guy who blew glass, right? right? Knew some things about ceramics. So, um, and so we got to learn a little about like the heat and the things and how you put these things together. And we learned that there are different heats that are necessary to to melt, not just uh, different, uh, uh, like if you want to build a brick, it's a certain temperature, it's about 2,400 degrees. But if you want to put the ceramic glaze on it, the different colors, I guess, melt at different temperatures, right? And so the hottest of the temperatures, according to this, uh, the guy, was, was white, right? And white, um, apparently to make that white kind of glaze or whatever, is like 2,900 degrees Fahrenheit. Think about that. That's crazy. Now, I just can't even, like I bake my pizzas at 400 degrees and still burn my mouth, right? You, like even afterwards, you take it out, you let it cool down. Still 2,900 degrees, that is just insane. So the Babylonians had this. Now if you walked into Babylon, you would go through into Babylon, you'd enter it through what was called the Ishtar Gate. And the Ishtar Gate was this massive gate that was made of these hardened bricks that had this ceramics on it, and most of them were this gorgeous cobalt blue, right? And it was a, a, just a thing of beauty. And on the side of the Ishtar Gate were other um, tiles that were white, and they made this, the images of different animals, of walking and stuff, in and out and stuff like this. They had the technology to, do, to break, make things very, very hot. That's what I'm saying, right? And they were very proud of that. And here is a place where the king has just uh, spared no expense. When you build a 90-foot-tall statue of gold, you spared no expense. He's going to put a good furnace there, right? They're going to decorate this thing. It's going to be nice. You have a big, hot furnace there. (laughs) And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are looking at that. And they say to the king, the king's like, if you don't do this worship, you are absolutely going to be thrown into that. That's terrifying. 
how do they respond in the midst of this gripping fear? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. They didn't plead for their life, which is exactly what I thought he was going, what everybody thought they were going to do. Thank you for giving us another chance, I'll kowtow, all this kind of stuff. They did not. They didn't fear the king's power because they feared a different power, a more true power. But the first thing that they appealed to was not that power. The first thing they did is say, listen, this is, you know, king, this is not something that even is up for debate for us. We don't have to defend it. You know, there are a lot of things in, the, in our Christian life, especially as we go through a culture, and there's a lot of pressure for us to give up and to give in to culture as we give away uh, what we know to be true in, in the Word. Right? And a lot of times we do that when, when culture comes in and says, this is the way things are now, this is what our new morality is, and it contradicts the Word. We feel like we have to somehow justify what God has said, this is what's true. Don't we? That's a false argument. I don't know why God said what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong. I don't know why he set things up the way he did, and he didn't ask me to. He just said, be obedient. I think there are so many things that are so far beyond our mind that God is the one who can set those things. He didn't say, he didn't say you have to understand it. He says, you have to obey it. And these guys, they start with that. Say, King, this is not a debatable thing. I don't know why God doesn't want us to bow down to your, your statue. Even if I did, it's not up to me. I don't have to justify myself to you. There is a higher power that I answered before. That's the one that matters. So they start with this. I'm not, we, don't, we don't have to discuss this. I'm not, we're not sorry for it. I maybe not understand all these things. I'm, I'm going to be faithful. And that's what they say next. We don't have to justify ourselves before you in this matter. I think for us, the first place that we need to look at is faithfulness and we trust true power is we need to trust God. He's smarter than you. You know that? He's smarter than me or all of us put together. That's why he's God. We need to really, I mean, if you really say you worship him and you follow him, go back to that. He has the ability and the right and the authority to set things. And it doesn't matter if you agree with him or not. We have the obligation to obey him. That's it. And that's actually pretty freeing. You think about it. We have to start there. And then it goes to this. Verse 17, but if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. But he also goes on, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. They go back to defend God's power. They say, listen, we don't have to, we're not going to answer to you for this, but listen, we might have to, if you're going to throw us into that furnace, they didn't cause a rebellion. They said, listen, we're going to stand against this. There's going to be consequences. We get it. You're going to throw us into that furnace. This is going to happen. And there are times in our life, in our faithful walk, we have to say, listen, I'm going to stand with God. And I might have to face some consequences for it. They didn't run away. They didn't cause a rebellion. They didn't try to kill the king because he wanted them to do something evil. They said, if you want to do that, you have the power to do it. If you do that, that's fine. Let me tell you, though, that my God is more powerful than you. My God can save us from the furnace. Not only that, he can save us from you, no matter what you throw at us. There was a deep belief in these men of the true power of God that I think oftentimes we have lost. They didn't trust themselves. They know that God can do anything, and he can do anything. They believe very deeply in his power. God can save us. 
And not only from a furnace, but from anything you throw, king. He's bigger than you. But I think the next verse, which we didn't memorize, but I think it's of of value, verse 18, it says, But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of the gold you have set up. Faith cannot be a quid pro quo kind of agreement. It's not a this for that. We don't worship God because he does things for us. And as long as God brings good things in my life, then I'm going to be faithful to him. It doesn't work like that. It didn't work like that for any other authority. Think about this. If, if you know, the police officer pulls you over and says, well, I'll bathe the speed limit, right? As soon as, you know, you guys start cleaning up my neighborhood, you're going to get a ticket. It's not, you don't have a choice. There, there's a thing. We worship God because he is God, period. Not because of what he does for you. And there will be times in your life that God doesn't do for you what you want him to do for you because he is God and you are not. He didn't come to this earth just to serve you. He said he did come to serve and to seek and to save the lost so that we would be able to, because that's his prerogative and that's his character. But he also calls the servants for a reason. And these men understood that. You know, Jesus said something very unpopular. A lot of things are unpopular. One thing he said was unpopular is he said this, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Right? Instead, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. We don't like that verse, do we? I mean, God is, is powerful, and Jesus reminds us of this. We can be intimidated by this world, but there is a God who's far more powerful. Now, in that passage, if you go on a little bit further down, Jesus says to the people, now, look at the, look at the birds of the field, right? Aren't those sparrows worth less like, than a penny? And doesn't God know every single day of their life, and when one falls, he's aware of it? So how much more valuable to God are you than, or to God are, are you than they are? So we trust God's power, and then we also recognize his, his love. But there's something in this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego recognized that God wasn't just, he, he wasn't just there to make their life easy. That God could save them or not, that was his prerogative. They, had no, they didn't have the ability to have any say on that. What they had the ability to say is, are they going to be faithful to this God or not? They were going to trust in God's power more than the power of Nebuchadnezzar and the power of man. That was what they could do. You may not be standing before a blazing furnace, but I think oftentimes we do stand at that same juncture, don't we? We can either trust in God to come through and to be God and to do what he's going to do, all right? Regardless of of that, we're going to choose to be faithful or not faithful. That is the choice. And if God comes through for us, that's awesome. But even if he doesn't, we will still stand with him. That is a powerful place to be. In fact, it's a place that every Christian comes to at some point in our, in our Christian walk. We find that, and, and Peter even talks about it in one of the epistles. He says, listen, you, you're going through many trials, all kinds of different trials. And we go through those so that our faith, which is far more valuable than even pure gold, right, will be proven true and will result in praise and glory when Christ returns. There are times that we will stand before this and there are times that God will come through and will rescue us and there are times that he will allow us to go into the furnace. And either way, he is still good and he is still God. Look at the apostles. Everyone died a martyr's death. Every one of them has a glorified body and a crown of, of, of splendor right, right now that lasts forever. We have to trust in the power of God which begins by fearing God and these guys got it in a good a way. And I said, if I have to fear you, king, or I've got to fear God Almighty, 
I'll choose to fear God Almighty. Thank you very much. Now, what happens? Sometimes faithful actions are, are uh, uh, result in, in bad things, don't they? Verse 19. The king Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them had changed. He was no longer looking to save face or how can I save these guys. He's like, that's it. You want to burn? You want to test your God? Okay, let's test him. Right? He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers of his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So those men tied them up. Now, as far as physical ability, I don't, it's, it's not possible to heat the, the, uh, the kiln seven times hotter than it was. The actual rocks themselves would begin to melt, right? So the king ordered it, but it doesn't say in the Bible that they actually got to the sevenfold number, right? When you start at 25 to 2,900 degrees, right, that's where it's at, okay? What we know is where they heat it, maybe 35 to 3,900 degrees is where they could get it to, especially with the technology and stuff they have. Let me tell you how hot that is, Okay. Because if, if, they had these big billows and they would be using this pumping in air and all that kind of stuff. At, at, um, I was talking to my dad about heat and radiation, how far it goes out. There was a house that was on fire here in Estes Park a couple of years ago, and they parked a fire truck on the street. It was about um, 40 feet from the, the house, uh, 45 feet from the house. And they parked the truck there, and they're spraying down the, the fire, and, thing, and they come back, and the tires and some of the glass on the fire truck itself had begun to melt. Okay, that's, that's a long ways away, Okay. Right? <laughs> okay, that, and I was like, well, how hot would a, at a house normally burn at and things like that? And he said, well, probably a thing like that is probably be like 1,500, 1,700 degrees. Okay. 3,500 degrees? The bricks themselves would be glowing red, even though their tri layer, how they have them set up, would be glowing red. You would not be able to approach that thing without catching on fire. A person walking by that kiln would, would ignite. <laughs> That's hot. Okay? So when they're seeing this, and this gets glowy red, and it takes a while, by the way, to, to bring this up to seven times the full, but it says that they did this fairly quickly, so we're not sure they got that hot, but it was, they could have. Now, they're heating up the kiln. They tie up these guys. The soldiers that he picks, he knows he's got to pick the strongest ones because they, they know it's a suicide mission. They tie up these guys, and they know they're going to their death. Think about the power the king has. That by a word, he can cause men to go and to bravely go and, and to die. That's power. The king, well, had an enormous amount of power, and these men did it. And these guys were incredibly brave. And they tied up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they did it quickly so that they didn't like, strip them or anything like that. They had all of their clothes on. And, and so the king's uh, command was so urgent, the furnace was so hot, the flames, uh, the fire that killed the soldiers that took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the three men firmly... Uh, Firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. The furnace was so hot, get this, that these soldiers, who I'm sure also put on extra layers of, of protection so they could get closer, didn't even make it to the furnace. When they opened that blast door, it killed them. They, you know, they burned up. And so these three men fall into the furnace. And the crazy thing is, obviously, when they open that blast door, no one can close it now because the guys that were close enough to open it up just died. So now that you've got this furnace with this big door open and all the heat kind of coming out, right? And the king's looking inside of this, and he's kind of sadistic because he's, he's sitting there. He wanted to watch. This was going to be his show, right? He's going to, hey, everybody, look what happens, because this was a great opportunity for him to show how powerful he is. Look what happens to anybody who defies my command and thinks that their God is bigger than me, right? But it's not what happened. Verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar, or, or sorry, 
24, King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked the advisors, weren't there three men who we tied up and threw in the fire? This is amazing. He's sitting there. He's all comfortable. He's going to watch his own soldiers die. Throwing, it shows you something about his personality. He was a little drunk on power himself. And he's sitting there, and he wants to watch these people burn up because he wanted to show them what's what, right? So he got his comfy chair, and he's looking at the furnace. He's watching these things, and all of a sudden, he's like, what? And kings don't normally do that, right? And so he does, and he's looking in, and he's like, maybe I'm not great with numbers, but wasn't there three? Like one, two, five, I don't know, three? And they're like, yeah. There was three guys, and he says, well, look, look in there. I see four men walking around in the fire, right? Unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the Son of God's. You know, it's really cool. Uh, in Scripture, obviously, we see Jesus making appearances and from time to time. And, and we find that in this instance, that even he was able to say, he looks like a man, but he's more than a man. And who do we know, though, is that? You know, there are times in our life that we have to, we want the peace of God. We want to be close to Jesus. And I think the times in our lives we recognize we're closest to him is when we're in the midst of the furnace, isn't it? As hard as that is. But you know what? It's at those times that the people that are the greatest critics of God actually see that our God is real. I think that's a powerful thing. You ever heard of that, that passage that says you, God will give you a peace that surpasses understanding? That's what he's talking about. You see, the peace that makes sense, a peace that is, falls within our understanding is when everything is good in our life. That's easy to have peace there. Everybody has that kind of peace. But it says in Scripture that when we bring God and we bring, cast all of our cares on him with gratitude and thanksgiving for who he is, right? And we bring our requests to him and we invite him into our life and say, have your way in, in my life, God. Then it says in those instances, God will give us a peace that surpasses understanding, which means that sometimes he leads us right into the furnace. And it's in the furnace that we're not freaked out anymore. The greatest fear these guys could have had to be all burned up. Now they're standing in the fire and guess what? They're not burned up. They're with the Lord. They're hanging out with him. They're walking about unharmed like, well, this is great. I imagine that they, there's a joke probably didn't get that this is cool if they would have had that, right? <laughs> right? They're just chilling with Jesus. There have been times in my life where I've gone into the furnace when things seem like they could not get worse, right? And everything seemed to be coming down around me. And it's in those times when, when I've gone to God and I've, and I've asked him and I've, and I've turned to him and I've, and I've said, you know, God, I need help. And all of a sudden, I receive this peace. It's kind of gradually slow. But, and I realize the things that I was afraid of really didn't have the power that I thought they did. And I have a different kind of peace, and my faith grows. But you know what also grows? The faith of the people around me. Even critics look into my life and say, how on earth can you possibly be okay with everything that's going on? I say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have to give an account for it. I'm just happy. Right? I'm walking with my Lord. And they can see it. And our faith is revealed to them. So then in verse 26, as Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come out. Now, I was wondering about time-wise because you don't get a time stamp on this. Clearly, he couldn't approach the entry quickly because the last guys who did that just a few minutes earlier got burned up. Right? How long would it take for a kiln to cool enough that you wouldn't just light on fire when you walked up to it? And the uh, best week of vigor, as you know, all the studies, about four hours. 
you have these guys, the king just sitting there in his chair. One, two, three, four. Yeah, four. Really? Four. Four guys. One's glowy. Four. Man, how they do it. Four hours. It's like, come look at this. Showing the other officials. This is crazy. Before he can, it's too hot for him to even get close to, and they're fine. Finally, it becomes time. It cools down enough. The king's able to get close enough. And he's like, um, I may have made a mistake. Why don't you guys come on out? And you see a different kind of humility. You are the servants of the Most High God. Now, so they came out. And everybody who was there, and this was God's purpose in the midst of this trial, it wasn't just to show Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but all of the people, the movers and shakers, all of these different countries, people of every tribe, nation, and tongue, that there is a God in this world who loves them, who is more powerful than anything in this world. You know how cool that is? They came there and Nebuchadnezzar wanted to turn into nation worship and God turned it around and said, no, no, we want everybody in the world to know exactly who I am and I'm a God that can save. And they could speak all the different languages and they had the authority. God did something amazing. And these guys, they had the authenticity. They were able to go up and to look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and like, man, they came out and they saw that the fire didn't harm their bodies and their hair wasn't, their, wasn't even singed and their robes weren't scorched and, and they, they didn't even smell like smoke. God is amazing things. And once it was validated, their faith was shown, then we see that the, the God of Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and, defiled, uh, and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any other god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of this nation, of any nation or language, who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubber. Of course, he goes back to fear, because that's just the way the nations of these worlds work. But here's this guy who lives in the city of gods, recognizes there is a God of gods. And you see in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's change from a man who worshipped himself eventually to a man who recognizes and worships God. It's powerful. And then it says the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the province of Babylon. Worked out well for him. Isn't a crazy story, isn't it? You know, we, we look at these and we say, well, that was so fantastic. How could it have anything to do with my life? Well, I'll tell you this, that there is power in this world and there's enough things to fear, but we have peace. Jesus said, I, I leave you my peace. Right? I'm giving you a peace, not like the world gives it. The world gives peace only to take it away, doesn't it? As I'm leaving you my peace, I'm leaving, and here's how he says we're giving his peace. He says, because I have overcome the world. Jesus is more powerful than anything in this world. That's more powerful than fires. It's more powerful than earthquakes. It's more powerful than governments. It's more powerful than persecution. It's more powerful than the media. It's more powerful than popular perception. It's more powerful than peer pressure. It's more powerful than your job or your boss or your finances. Our God is more powerful than anything, and he cares for you. And all he asks is be faithful. Just trust him. And if bad things happen, he even says in Romans 8, then he can use those things not only for your good, but for the good of his kingdom and the good for other people. So if we suffer, suffer for righteousness. Right? And if he delivers us, then we, we stand in righteousness and we are able to be a testimony of his goodness. That's the courage. So what's the takeaway from this passage? It's simple this. It's, it's respect true power. God's powerful. He is the only one that is truly powerful. And he invites you to let him be powerful in you. 
How do we do that? Well, if you take out your connection card, I have got some suggestions, some next steps that you can do, that you can take. The first thing that you can do is you take that pat- the thing is you turn on the back side and it says this, Daniel 3.17 is something that you want to memorize. I think it's important for us to realize that in this world, we are under, the, con- uh, under the, the protection and the control of a very powerful God. And if he allows us to suffer, he's with us in the fire, right? And our God is able to deliver us from anything. Remember that. Maybe that's where you need to, to, to memorize and to think on and pray on because maybe right now it feels like you're entering the furnace or you're looking into something very scary. Or maybe what you need to do is read Daniel 3. And see a true story of faith in action. Not always happens so spectacular, but it happens. God is powerful and he is sovereign. Or maybe what you need to do is pray for courage. Maybe you are right now and you know you want to stay faithful, but the consequences seem so severe. And it's hard to say to the one who can set you free, I don't have to give you an excuse for this. I'm going to stand with God. Maybe you need courage. And you know what? The Holy Spirit who is in you will give you courage, but you need to ask for it. So maybe that's what you do this week. It's when you start to falter and you feel, you say, I need courage. Or how about this? Maybe you need to trust real power. Maybe you just need to trust God is at work in your life right now. Even though painful or difficult things are, that God is still there. What he's asking from you is to be faithful. If you're suffering because you're not being faithful, that's on you. But if you're suffering and you're standing in faithfulness, God is doing something powerful in it. So trust him. Maybe there's something else the Holy Spirit's telling you to do. I would suggest obeying him. Let me know. As your pastor, I would like to be able to support you in it. That you can write that down if there's something else that you've been called to. Maybe there's a different commitment or, or request that you have. Uh, uh, you can let me know on the other side. Or if you have a prayer request, write those down. Because our God is not just the God of the Old Testament. He's not the God of, of the, just heaven. He's the God of the here and now. He's the God of eternity. And he is with us. And if you bring your concerns to him and your cares for him, he does amazing things. And every week, it seems like I've been getting people coming back and saying, thank you for praying for these things, and here are the answers. So let us join you and let me support you that way. I, I certainly love to do that. Write those down. And in a minute, we're going to take our, our, uh, our offering. And as we take our offering and put our tithes and offering in the basket, take this connection card and put it in there. We would sure appreciate it. And then as you're doing that, I'm going to have... Uh, uh, one of the interns from Ravencrest is going to join me up here on stage. Um, we're going to be baptizing him today, and so um, I'll be doing that. So, um, uh, so let's pray for our tithes and our offerings first and, and, and take those. Heavenly Father, thank you for you and for your sovereignty and your goodness. We thank you for your power. Lord, I, I'm grateful that you're bigger than this world. I'm grateful that you, <laughs> uh, more than anything else, the, all the things that we could be afraid of in this world, that we don't have to fear those things because we can actually respect you. That you've overcome this world in a, in a great way, and instead of bringing death, you bring life. Lord, instead of bringing terror, you bring joy. That you are a God who saves even those of us who are far off. Lord, that you even use the, the works of the enemy against them. Just like Nebuchadnezzar was trying to set up idol worship, and you used that to turn an entire group of people to you. God, you can use anything. I'm grateful to know that you are able. So, Father, I pray for this congregation, for this church, as we go ahead this next week and beyond, help us to be a people that trust you. Let us be a people that's faithful to you, not because of what you can do for us, but simply because of who you are and that you are worthy. And, Lord, I pray for uh, these commitments that we're making today. I pray that you draw us closer to you as we keep these, that you would change us from the inside out and be people who represent you better. 
And Father, who uh, experience your love and your power in our life. And Father, I also pray for our tithes, our offerings that we're bringing to you. Now, these are uh, these are expressions of our neediness, Lord. We have a lot because you've given it to us, but we get to invest in your kingdom because you asked us to, because you want your kingdom to grow not only in us, but also in this world. So Father, I pray that you would do great things through these gifts. Give us the wisdom to handle those funds responsibly. But God, I pray even more that you would reach many people with the love of Christ and you would build your kingdom in Estes Park and beyond as a result. And we pray all of this in the powerful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. introduce you to uh, TJ. I can't pronounce his whole name because uh, it's, well, how do you say your whole name again? Yeah, see? <laughs> yeah, but it, it starts with a T and a J, so I'm going to call him TJ. Is that all right? Yeah, okay, good. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, yes, uh, last week, he uh, works at Ravencrest as an intern this year, joined us uh, for our membership class, and we talked about baptism, and, and uh, so I'm just going to have you just share briefly why you want to be baptized. Good. So he talked to us. So this is a great reason. It's about he wants to, as an expression of his faith, appeal to God for a clean conscience and, and all those things. So uh, we said we'll be baptizing him today, and we have another brother that will be welcoming the church family, obviously, which is a great thing. So um, like we always do, just to make sure that we are on the same page, if you can have your hand, we'll uh, repeat after me a good confession of faith, so long as you truly believe it. I believe, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the, Christ the, Son the Son of the living God, and I choose him. As my, Lord as my Lord and my Savior. And my Wonderful. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to pray for TJ, and then um, he's going to change some of my, because I don't want to get my clothes wet, and then uh, we'll, you guys will sing, and I'll come back to do baptism. Great. Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you for TJ's faith, and what a great example for us to say, you know, I want to be obedient to you and to look into the Word and to be compelled by faith to take faithful action. And so, Father, today I pray that you would bless TJ in this. Keep him as he grows in faith in you. Lord, bless him with, obviously, not just the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but also, Father, the gift of fellowship of your church, Father. And this year, as he's here in Estes Park and he's serving Ravencrest, Lord, that he would continue to grow as a servant of yours, not just being baptized, but learning how to obey you in all things. Lord, and as he does it, I pray that you would build his ministry, protect him from the enemy, 
Father, as you build faithfulness in him and through him, Father, let this church be a true church family of support. Father, as uh, we walk together, as we are disciples of, of Christ that make disciples of Christ. We pray this in, in his powerful name. Amen.